0: Thank you for that reading, Alistair. I think that is the voice that we need to read the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Have you ever thought about doing audio books? A hearty welcome to you, to repeat what Chris said. Special welcome if you're visiting us maybe for the first time or one of the first times. And you came to the Community Day yesterday. It was a fantastic day. I was thrilled to meet many new people from around and about. And I just wanted to give an enormous thank you to every single person who worked so hard to make that day happen. Um, it's really difficult to thank people because you're always scared you're going to miss someone out. But I want to just mention a, f- a, a few people who, who've really um, made this thing happen, which is Ben and Miriam Howley, who are responsible for making, uh, transforming our environment. Um, the, all the, the beauty of the room is, is their vision and all their time to, to make it happen. We're not going to whoop for everyone, okay? Uh, Simon, Erith, and Chris Underwood put in long hours this week to make it practically possible. Uh, Some guys were here till 3 a.m. on Friday morning putting these things up. And also to thank Caroline, Gentry, and the Well team for your tireless work in putting on drinks and food for everybody. And everyone who led an event and volunteered yesterday. And most of all to thank my colleagues Ben and Kate who have just conceived and then driven this day forward. It's been a really good thing. So thank you so much. So shall we show our appreciation? (laughs) Now, if you're visiting today, it probably seems really strange that we are looking at the Ten Commandments in the lead up to Christmas, there are two good reasons for doing so. The first is that our normal way of learning through in our church throughout the year is to, to work through sections of the Bible, which we believe is God's word to us. So we take books or chapters or important passages and we preach through them week by week. And If you look on our website, you see uh, hundreds of examples. And that helps us to be formed as a community by the whole wisdom of God in the Bible and it keeps us from being imbalanced or riding the pastor's latest hobby horse. Now the second reason is actually that in planning this series it actually seemed highly appropriate to me to think together about this tenth commandment as we approach Christmas because I think it gets to the heart of what can go wrong with Christmas in our culture and that really is a pointer to what goes wrong with our hearts all the time. Your heart, my heart. And I'm going to try today and show you what I mean. The Tenth Commandment is a surprising one at first sight. It says, you shall not covet. What's that? We already have a bit of a problem. Most of us probably don't use the word covet in everyday life. Do you? What does it mean? And why does God think this is so serious? Now, the Ten Commandments, as we've heard, include some pretty heavy-duty sins that most people would agree are quite bad news. You shouldn't steal from other people. You shouldn't commit adultery, break the marriage relationship. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't bear false testimony and and, and speak ill of somebody. These are all heavy-duty things. And then suddenly we get this, at the end of the list, it's kind of a bit of a... uh, You should not cover it. What's that? Why does that make its way on? And what we've seen this term as we've worked through these ten is that uh, through Moses, God is giving his people a blueprint of what it means to be fully human. Chris has already mentioned that. This is what it means to choose life, to follow this way of life, to pursue it. So to pursue the kind of life which we see in the Ten Commandments is not to be less than human. It is actually to be fully human human. To live as a free person. And I hope that by the end of this message you will agree with me that this is what we need. We're just going to look at three things today. What coveting is, why it matters, and what we can do about it. Firstly, what it is. The word covet has fallen into almost complete misuse. It's not part of our everyday speech. Maybe we hear it being used of um, when there's going to be a prize. For something, it's a coveted prize. You know, it's something that people really want. But we do have to do some homework to understand the word. Sometimes people think that coveting is totally negative, but that is not the case. There are examples where God himself covets in the Bible. So in Psalm 68, God looks at the mountains in the Near East where Israel is and he sees the mountain that he has his, his temple on, Mount Zion. And that's the place that God really wants to live with his people. And around that, actually, maybe even visible on the skyline, but certainly nearby, are much taller mountains than Mount Zion. And it says in Psalm 68, God rebukes the tall mountains that are looking around. It's picture language. Because they're looking down with envy. Why? Because God covets to have his presence on Mount Zion and to make his dwelling there forever God really wants to live with his people and the other mountains are jealous and then in the New Testament there's positive use of this word for Christians Saint Paul in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 31 this is the old King James version he wrote this covert earnestly the best gifts or the better gifts in other words it's perfectly good it's perfectly right to want To have some gift in the church so that you can serve other people. Covert the best gifts. Jesus even used this word about himself in Luke 22. He's talking about the last supper. He's going to eat the final meal with his disciples before he goes to the cross. It's a Passover meal. And he says this amazing phrase, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. The language he uses is really uh, intense. He says, I've desired it with a great desire. I really wanted, uh, longed for, craved to eat this meal with you, my friends. So the word means, the word covet means to desire intensely or to set your heart upon something. It's not just to admire it or like it and think, oh, yeah, that's quite nice. That's quite a nice microphone. It's to think, I really need that microphone. (laughs) That example wasn't in the script. So coveting by itself is neutral. It's good to covet some things. Everything depends on context. But what is wrong is when your heart, you set your heart on something that belongs to another person that you can't have because it's theirs. That's a different matter. And that's the point. If we look at the rest of the verse, if you, if you want to look back at Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, It fills in the picture. It's like a drop-down box. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And some of you are thinking, I'm not that interested in my neighbor's donkey. Now, these are examples appropriate for that time. Three and a half thousand years ago. Here's what they mean. Don't covet your neighbor's house. It's like the summary heading. It means everything. All that your neighbor has and is. The big picture. Don't covet your neighbor's life. Oh, I wish I had their life. Of course it includes their home. And that can be an issue for some of us. I'll never be happy until I have this kind of house. And the thing is, it tends to grow over the years. You know, you used to be happy in a little bit rented one-bedroom flat. And then your life expanded and you, you bought a two-bedroom flat. And then you weren't happy until you got an end-terrace house. And then you weren't happy until you had a semi. And now you're looking at a detached house or a period property or something really big or something with a pool. I used to be happy in that, but now, oh, wouldn't it be nice to live there? Now, the thing is, God has blessed other people in different ways to you. That's good. It's part of his goodness to them. But don't make your happiness depend on God's provision for your life looking exactly the same. He knows what he's doing. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't desire that which God has given to him and not to you. We could... Reverse the genders here. Don't set your heart on it. And part of this is not, obviously, not lusting after that spouse who God has not given to you. Don't spend your time undressing her in your mind and thinking what it would be like to be intimate with her or fantasizing about life with that husband. He seems such a great husband. You know, he can even do DIY it's very thoughtful and don't imagine if only I was married to him if only I was married to her then I'd be happy that's coveting it's very foolish it's wrong and it is deeply offensive to God who made you and has given you your life and if you're married he's made your marriage and given you that Don't covet your neighbor's servants. I don't expect many of us have neighbors with servants. Maybe they've got a cleaner. Maybe they spend money on a tutor. But there are modern substitutes for servants, aren't there? Their cooker. Oh, my days, they've got an amazing cooker. You've seen it? It's got two ovens. (laughs) That barbecue, oh, that barbecue is incredible. I wish I had a barbecue like that. I'd be cooking out there all the time. Their laptop, that's a kind of servant. A smartphone is a servant. A washing machine is a servant. It's all about your neighbor's situation. What about the ox and donkey? It's about transport. Their shiny new car. Or the fact they have two cars. Or the fact they have a big car. Or they have a very cool bike or they have three bikes, or they have the the top-of-the-range baby buggy. You know, the one that everybody wants? The one that costs over a thousand pounds for a child who's going to be sick on it? (laughs) Defecate in it and grow out of it after covering it with baby food? Oh, I'd love to have that buggy. We would look pretty good if we had that buggy. In other words, don't cover anything that belongs to your neighbor because that which belongs to you is what God has given you, including your whole life and circumstances. So friends, let me ask, do you despise your life or things about yourself or your possessions? Do you despise the gifts that God has given you and cover those that he's given to your neighbor? The neighbor in the Bible is anyone who's close to you, right? It's not just the people on either side. Anyone that's close to you. You despise your own life. You loathe it. You look down on it with contempt. You wish, oh, I wish I had that. That spouse, that life, that that possession. Now, listen to this. If you do this, if you covet, you can never be happy. You can never be happy. And that's why I say this is very relevant to all of us. This is where this starts to bite, because the Tenth Commandment isn't just sort of out there on a stone tablet up on a mountain. It is in here. It is in our deepest being, our deepest heart. It's in our imagination and in our affections. It infects everything, because something in the core of us is out of joint, is twisted, is disordered. And until that thing inside of us deeply is put right, we can never be happy with what we have and who we are. Because even if you were given half the world, you would still be craving for the other half. You see what I mean? What it is, I think we know now. Why does it matter? I hope by now it's becoming clear why coveting matters. Can you see how relevant it is to our own lives if we have even you know 1 milligram of self awareness we are so rarely contented we always seem to want more or something new or something different we are nothing like as grateful as we ought to be especially i have to say us british people we are the world experts in complaining I mean, the Americans have a whole special season called Thanksgiving, where they have a big meal together, and they give thanks. And I get messages from American friends on Thanksgiving Day saying, I'm really grateful for you because you're a really good friend or or whatever. And British people look at that and think, come off it. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that good. I mean, we, we couldn't have Thanksgiving Day in this culture. We need to have moaning day. Let's get together and moan about all the things that are wrong with our lives. I'm going to message someone, you know, you really bug me because of this. <laughs> Tom and Tanya recently moved to join our church from the United States. I'm afraid this is what you've come to. You know, we're nothing like as grateful as we should be. If we discover, now you've got to just wait for this. If you discover that someone else has something that you want, even if you didn't know it existed until that moment, you somehow feel inadequate and lacking. Oh, I wish I had a mirror that could take photos and print the pictures of people. We convince ourselves we won't be happy until we acquire that one thing. And if you think about it, this is absolutely bonkers, isn't it? I mean, we are basically insane. Here's the there's some dreadful problems. This is why it matters. Firstly, we don't see it, we don't see covetousness. You know, adultery is quite obvious. You don't just suddenly wake up in bed with someone and say, Who are you? (laughs) But covetousness goes under the radar. Uh, I used a sermon when I was preparing this sermon by one of my heroes. It was a professor called Gordon Hugenberger, an unforgettable man and an unforgettable name. Gordon Hugenberger used to live near a a Roman Catholic priest And they were both friends. And Gordon said to him at one point, the priest was near to retirement. And you know, in in Roman Catholicism, priests hear confession very, very often. I don't know if they do it every day. They sit in a booth and people come and confess their sins. This guy had been doing it for years and years and years. Hearing people confess their sins. Pouring out their lives in in the, the safety of the confessional. And Gordon Hugenberger said, has anybody ever confessed the sin of coveting? the guy scratched his head. He said, nah, never. Because we don't see it. I think that's why, you know, it says, do not murder, do not uh, commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet. By the way, look around. Neighbors' house, neighbors' wife, look at her. Neighbors' ox and donkey, that's a very nice donkey. (laughs) Neighbors' servant, he's got really good servants. Oh, now I get what it's talking about. We don't see it. We don't get it. Here's a diagnostic. Why do you complain so much? What do you whinge about? That shows you something. Have a dig around down there. You might find your coveting. And this dreadful problem is that coveting is a life-dominating desire. It's life-dominating. It's an intense craving for something. It is insatiable. It can never be satisfied. It is setting your heart intensely on something that God hasn't chosen to give to you. He's given it to someone else. And it means not just that you want it, but that you want it centrally. You want it passionately with all your being. You've invested a big part of your happiness, and you've invested a big part of your hopes in something. And that's what it means to covet. To invest a major part of your hope and your happiness in something that someone else has. And Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, says that coveting is idolatry. It's worshipping a false god. Because coveting isn't just desire. It is inordinate, out of proportion, over the top desire. Why it matters. I, I love lamb curry. Oh, even thinking about it now I could eat it three times a day I love lamb biryani I love my children and I love God all those things deserve to be loved believe me but not equally there's an order to it if I love lamb curry more than God I have got a problem and this is the thing if God hasn't given something to you and you're craving it and building your life on it, then it is coveting to you. It wouldn't be for someone else. Only you will know, actually, probably, the substance of where this is a problem. Desiring something that God has not given to you. So why does he single out this sin? Why does it matter? It's just like the ones that go before it. You know, the, We've thought about how the Ten Commandments can be divided into two parts. The first four are all about our relationship with God, and the second six are all about our relationship with other people. So, with God, we're thinking about our relationship vertically. And with other people, we're thinking about our relationships horizontally. So, it's the whole of life. And Andrew pointed out that the fifth commandment about your parents actually is a bridge from God to our neighbors. And so, here, the second half are all about how we relate to others. You shouldn't murder, you shouldn't commit adultery, steal, lie. They're all about concern for our neighbor. But now we get to this one, and this one is actually toxic. Because other sins may cause great harm to yourself, but not directly affect your neighbor. But when you are given to the sin of covetousness, it is lethal to your neighbor. It is the poison that turns a sister into an enemy and a rival. Maybe some of you know that. It is the poison that destroys our relationships in every way. Just think about how careful you have to be when you've got some good news about who you share it with. You want to tell somebody, "I just got engaged." My ring. You've got to be careful who you tell, haven't you? I just inherited a big sum of money. By the way, for me to say that is completely theoretical. <laughs> Second generation pastor. <laughs> but if you did inherit a great sum of money, I bet you'd be careful who you told. And you might not say how much it was because of what might happen in their heart. Or I've, been, I've just got this new job, I've been promoted uh, above people who've been there longer. Or my child just did this, your child just achieved something. You'd be careful how you'd say that to another parent, wouldn't you? You see how it affects relationships? We know it. We can feel it. It destroys relationships in both directions. I I know uh, a very beautiful young lady. I've known her for many years. I, I don't know many beautiful people. No disrespect to King's Church. But I do know this girl very well, and I know that people look at her, and sometimes they, and often they, the first thing they'll say to her is, wow, you, you look like Kendall Jenner. If you don't know who that is, don't worry. And you think, wouldn't it be wonderful to be beautiful? And what I've noticed is that there is such a thing as pretty privilege. Things go well if you're very good looking, but oh my days, beauty is also a terrible burden. I'm not exaggerating. The treatment she endured from other girls at school, because she was clearly beautiful, was horrid. She never escaped the jealousy. They coveted what she had. Some good friends of ours in Manchester, where we lived for 12 years, uh, lived in a semi-detached house, had an ordinary car, had 2.3 children, had a dog, I think. And he ran a little software business that he'd built up from scratch. He was very good at what he did. And then one year, he sold the business to a big American company. And they paid him millions of pounds for it. It's because of his business skill, he'd done this. He'd developed it. So suddenly, they went from being kind of like the rest of us to being in another league. And wouldn't it be lovely to suddenly have millions of pounds, don't you think? It wasn't lovely for them We could hardly believe our eyes because all at once, a lot of friendships turned very sour for them. Some people just couldn't handle the fact that they were no longer richer than that couple and turned their back on them. And then there was this other thing that crept in was that if they go out for dinner, does everybody think they should pay because they're wealthy now? And if somebody's being friendly with you, are they doing it because of me or because they think they can get something from me? See, having great wealth introduces all of this stuff because it's poisoned by covetousness. You see how even really good gifts get infected by this toxic sin. And if you think about it, coveting is underneath all the other sins. What I mean is, you don't break the, t- the Ten Commandments without breaking the tenth one first, uh, it can lead to murder. Cain was jealous of his brother's sacrifice, so he murdered him. It can lead to false testimony. Somebody desired the vineyard of a guy called Naboth, so they made up a story and had false witnesses get him out of it and take it from him. It can lead to theft. Achan, in the the, uh, Old Testament, saw some gold and some possessions And he set his heart on them and coveted them, and he took them for himself. He stole them. It can lead to adultery. David was on the roof of his palace. He looked down and saw a gorgeous woman, and it it led to the downfall of his his life and his kingdom. Now look, we have been given strong desires as part of who we are. We have been given strong desires. We We are passionate creatures. So having a strong desire is not somehow sub-Christian. Being a Christian doesn't mean you have to be bland and sort of magnolia and, you know, a bit feeble, bloodless. Strong passions are part of what it means to be fully human. So it's not having strong desire or love that's the problem. The problem is the perversion of it, the disordering of it, because Coveting is perverting what God has intended. When God showed favor on the offering of Abel back at the beginning of human history, Cain had the opportunity to look at that and say, huh, what is it that Abel has done here? How can I imitate my brother and enter into a similarly positive relationship with God? But instead, he decided to eliminate his brother and remove the comparison. You see how deadly this sin is? Why it matters? What can we do? What can we do if you've seen it in your own heart today? What can we do? Third point. These commandments that we've been studying and we've finished today have not been given to us simply to make us feel bad. Right? The purpose of the series is not to make you go, bad Christian, stop speeding. They're also not given to us simply for a quick fix on some aspect of our behavior. You know, if I I just do this few things differently, then I'll have sorted it. That's a bit like getting a plaster, you know, a sticking plaster, and putting it over a part of your body that has cancer. You might cover it up for a while, but the cancer is going to spread. So these things aren't given for make you feel bad or use a sticking plaster. The, the, what they're, do, they're seeking to do is get us to realize our need for a changed heart, for a new interior. The beauty of the 10th commandment is that it shows us, without a shadow of a doubt, that God is concerned with the core of who you are, with your heart. What else could it mean? It's all about desires. It's not about actions. Alexander McLaren, a great Victorian preacher, wrote these words. This final commandment leaps over the boundary between conduct and character. So here's conduct, here's what you do. Here's character, here's who you are. It leaps over that boundary and makes us think about the kind of people we are. It carries the light into the dark places of the heart where deeds are fashioned. And listen to this. It sets the whole flock of bats and twilight-loving creatures in agitation. he says this commandment when you think about it it jumps across from your behavior to who you are it goes into the dark of your heart and when you go down there you switch a light on there's all sorts of bats and horrible creatures and they all start fluttering and flying it's a bit like the Batman films shows us who we are nobody knows when you're coveting do they? most people don't it's clearly not part of a criminal law system how would anyone be able to prove it? There's little or no evidence. But the 10th commandment is showing us that the roots of our unhealthy behavior, which the Bible calls sin, go down to the core of who we are. And that's what the Bible calls the heart. So if we want to be fully human, we're going to need some heart surgery. We're going to need a very good cardiologist to give us a new heart. And I'm going to finish the series with three R's to end our series. What we can do about it, there are three R's repent old fashioned word remind and reorder repent, remind, reorder repent I've said this before only about 25 times but repentance in the Bible is a change of heart that leads to a total change of direction so I'm walking this way in my life I see Jesus I hear the good news I realize I'm, I'm, I need to turn around and follow him and he turns me around and I walk the other way free person. Turning around, complete reorientation is what repent means. So, today, if you've heard God speaking to you, and I didn't prepare this with anyone in this room in mind, by the way. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'll have a go at him. If you have heard God speaking to you, that was definitely God. That's the Holy Spirit moving among us, which is what we expect on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. If you have seen this ugly thing in your heart today, repent. Turn around from it. We need to be brokenhearted, confessing our sins, maybe with tears on our knees. Lord, forgive me. I've seen how wretched I am. It's miserable. 1 John says, whoever says they have no sin deceives themselves. So if you think you're completely perfect today, you're lying to yourself. But the one who confesses their sin, God is faithful and just to forgive them their sin and cleanse them, wash them from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just to do it. Now listen, repentance, repent is a lifestyle, not an event. It's not something you do once and then you're a Christian and you never repent again. We don't get made perfect overnight. Martin Luther pointed out, the whole of life is repentance. We keep on in this way. So to live a fully human life is to live a life of happy repentance. Joyful repentance. I love repenting. Can you say that? I wonder if repentance for you is more like flagellation. Flagellation is beating yourself. The flagellants, I just found this out researching, I never heard of them before. There were actually a movement in the medieval church called the flagellants. Zealous Christians would literally whip and beat their own bodies as a sign of sorrow for sin. They would get some branches or a whip and and hurt themselves, self-harming. It started in Italy and it spread across Europe and at its peak, flagellants, really there were such people, traveled around towns and cities to preach their message and to perform Flagellation in front of people to show what it meant to be really sorry for sin they would in the public do this now listen that is not the gospel that is not the good news that Jesus came to bring if the son Jesus sets you free then you are free indeed so don't be dragged back to a yoke of slavery but here's the thing Those people, earnest and sincere as they were, look an awful lot like what some Christians view the Christian life as. You think that Christian growth has to be horrible. It has to involve being beaten up. Some people want me to beat them up in a sermon. Because then if you get enough beating, you'll feel good about yourself. Listen, Jesus Christ came for you. He's for you. He loves you. He, He adores you, we might say. He knows everything about you and accepts you fully. He's not out to rub your nose in it. We will only grow as healthy followers of Jesus if we embrace that good news. More love than I could possibly imagine. So we have to cultivate good habits. And that's the second point, is to remind, to remind ourselves. We are shaped by habits. You know, you become like what you love and what you spend time doing. The things you absorb yourself in what you spend your time and your talents and your treasure on, those are the things that will shape you. So we need to remind ourselves constantly of the good news of Jesus and his love and his cross and his forgiveness, free and full, and his resurrection to new life and his rule now and the future return. There's an old hymn that puts it quite quaintly but very poignantly. Let me read a couple of verses. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story softly, with earnest tones and grave. Remember, I am the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always, if you would really be in any time of trouble, a comforter to me. Tell me the same old story when you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. And when the Lord's bright glory is dawning on my soul, tell me the old, old story, Christ Jesus makes you whole. Tell me the old, old story. Now what these... That lovely hymn reminds us, is the central truth of the Bible, is that we grow best in community. We grow best in community and we need each other. Notice in the song how it's one person telling me, I need someone to tell me that story, not just to do it myself. We just ran a new members course at the church. We spent four weeks with with 12 people, uh, 12 adults, and we talked through what it means to become a member of our church. Uh, Great course, really fun, and we're going to run it again in the spring if you want to come. Now, one of the things we explored together is how the Bible is full of instructions with the key phrase, one another. Love one another. Serve one another. (coughs) Encourage one another. Exhort, rebuke, challenge one another. Bear one another's burdens, and on and on it goes. How can we live that vision of Christianity to be in a, in a in a life where one another is influencing us. Do you know that drive through church has been done and is being done? I've already spoken about my admiration for American people, but drive through church is not one of their greatest inventions. A bunch of people drive to a car park, don't get out of the cars, sit there, watch a the service on a big screen, maybe a pastor on a big crane speaking. And instead of shouting our men, they'll honk the horn and maybe wave to someone in the next car and then drive away, safe from other people. drive through church is possible. You know, we could do it here. We've got a big car park. But it's not the New Testament vision of church. There's an assumption here that to be a Christian, we grow best in community. I need you to remind me. <coughs> I need you to remind me if I'm going to defeat this toxic covetousness. I need you to speak into my life. I need you to help me. And finally, losing my voice, we need to reorder. We need to reorder. Back in the 4th century was an African bishop, St. Augustine, and he noticed something. He said, why all these details in the 10th commandment? You know, the house, the wife, the ox, the donkey, the servants. And he realized this. It's going back through some of the other commandments. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Well, you wouldn't break... The adultery commandment, unless you broke number 10, you started coveting her. And if you covet your, your neighbor's ox and donkey's possessions, well, that might lead you to steal. That's the eighth commandment. And coveting your neighbor's life might lead you to take his life. That's Murder. So Augustine looked at this and he realized how underneath everything coveting was. And he came to define sin very wisely. We tend to think about sin as breaking the rules, which it is. But Augustine said the real problem is disordered love. We love things too much that aren't the right things. You would never break any commandment unless you first set your heart on something in this world in a way that you should only set it on God. And this is why we shock ourselves sometimes of what we're capable of. Because we're creatures of strong love. So the heart of sin isn't breaking the rules. The heart of sin is making a good thing into a God thing. Dr. Tim Keller gave this example. Imagine two people. They've got the same career. Successful. They've got the same position. A lot of status. Wealth. Person A becomes a Christian. And starts to grow as a Christian and find joy and life and forgiveness and mercy and meaning and purpose in Jesus. And they, they start reading the Bible privately and praying privately and going to church. And they go week in, week out. And they're shaped by the community of the church. And their, their loves begin to get reordered. But person B lives for the career. That's what they eat, drink, and sleep. That's what they set their heart and mind on. That's what makes them, gives them an identity. They live for work. They're very good at it. It defines them. And then both the people are sacked on the same day. They're made redundant. And because of their age, they know there's no way back to the same level. How would they respond? Person A is going to be very disappointed and upset. Isn't he or she? They might be despondent for a while but it's not the main thing they're living for because they know Jesus Christ and his acceptance and love but person B has nothing left the stakes were too high now their whole life is devastated everything they were living for and basing their identity on is gone and they can't get it back what you intensely desire whatever you crave if it's not the real God and something else is your Lord and Savior, and you will do anything to have it. You might lie, cheat, or steal. You might even kill, because it is supremely important. So we need our loves to be reordered, and that will only come as we fix our eyes on Jesus day by day, week by week. This is not a call to self improvement or a DIY manual for contentment, it is a call to to cling to Jesus Christ by faith. He alone is capable of dealing with this issue in our lives. So turn to God to change your heart, to give you a new heart. We need Christ to come in and change us from the inside out. Nobody else can do it. No amount of willpower. Only he can, and this is how he'll do it. He will fill your cup with his love. He will show you how how much he loves you and overwhelm you with the sufficiency of his presence and the joy and the safety you have in him. So let's turn to him again, shall we? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, uh, we thank you that you, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and that you have loved us before the foundation of the world. Help us to, to revel in your love and Take away this love of coveting, amen.